You're here this morning, we're in the third of the four servant songs of the fifth gospel, the prophecy of Isaiah. So we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 50. We're going to begin in verse 4 and read through verse 11. God's word says, the Lord God has given me. This is the servant talking again in the first person, just like we saw in the second. So we can actually think six to seven hundred years before the birth of Jesus, here's Jesus talking to us. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace or spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, the servant says that you opened his ears to hear. And that's my prayer for my people today. Father, that through your spirit you would open up our ears to hear and that we would hear the voice of heaven speaking down to us that the weary would be sustained, that the comfortable would be afflicted, that those that are walking by the light of their own torches would recognize the torment of their ways and the torment of their destiny and turn and fear the Lord and rely upon the Lord. We are thankful this morning for that servant. The servant who still sits today at your right hand. The servant who willingly gave and laid down his life. The servant who made a way for us. The servant who showed the way for us. And I pray, O Lord, that what you would build here at Iron City is a congregation of servants that are emblematic of that first original servant. Lord, open our ears Open our hearts, open our minds, set us on fire for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Many of you will remember the great blizzard of 93, right? That's the reason, 93. In case you're wondering, like if you're an Alabama transplant and you wonder why when you go hear the word snow and all the grocery stores run out of milk and bread, it all starts in 93, okay? Before 93... Nobody worried about the snow in Alabama. After 93, all chaos comes and breaks loose when uh, when snow is mentioned. I was seven years old in 93, and I was short for my age even then. And at that time, a foot and a half snow fell at my parents' house. 
And I can remember being out there and looking out and watching, you know, we used to go out and put a, a pot out so that you could catch the snow and have the snow cream. Any of y'all ever done that, right? And I remember we went out and my mom ran out and we put, it out, put the pot out to catch the snow so we could have snow cream. And he went out and you couldn't even find the pot the next morning. I mean, it was, it was really incredible. And I remember I wanted to go out and I wanted to play in it so bad. Right, like I mean, a, a southern boy doesn't get an opportunity to play in the snow like that very often. And so I remember I, my mom gets me all dressed up and I have all my warmest clothes and all the dry, you know, which amounts to in those days like camouflage coveralls, right? Isn't that what we have? Like you get your hunting clothes on, your best hunting clothes, you got them on. And so my mom puts all my hunting clothes on me and I and I go outside and I want to play. And I remember we I walk out of the carport and I can't go any further. I, I literally can't walk in the snow it comes up over my waist and so I can't move in the snow and it was like the greatest defeat right I've sat here finally all these things that I've seen on television all these things that I've ever thought about snow here is my opportunity and I'm not even man enough to be able to enjoy it right so I go and I'm dejected and so you know what happens my dad goes in and he, he was a bread man by the way so he got to wreak all the have you know reap all the benefit benefit when all the snow craze hits the milk and the bread afterward that was a little plot twist my dad my dad comes out anyway and what he does is he begins to walk through the snow and when he would walk through the snow everywhere that he would walk there would be a trail that would be cut out right and so he began to walk and he would he made this little network of trails for me and so he would walk here and there, and he would go up to the woods and go up to the top of the hill. And I remember him building this little sled thing. And so he, he kind of carved a path through the snow. And what's interesting about that is in one sense, what my dad did is he showed me where to walk, right? He showed me where to go, walk, which direction to go, which places I should go, and which places I shouldn't go. But there's another sense in which what my dad did was not just show me where to walk, but he actually made it possible for me to walk. He enabled me to walk. And I think this is how we should understand the servant that comes in the person of Jesus. That in one sense, what Jesus does is Jesus shows us the servant that Israel should have always been. He shows us the servant that we should always be. He shows what it looks like to be obedient to the will of God. He shows what it looks like to live your entire life sold out and committed to the call of God and to the glory of God. And so he shows us the way that we should go. But Jesus doesn't just show us how we should live and who we should be. He shows how it's possible. He comes and he enables us to actually be able to walk behind him and to obey the Lord and to live a new life. That what Jesus does, in effect, is Jesus comes and he carves a path through the snow to make it possible so that we know what it looks like, the direction to go toward God, and so that we can actually begin to take those steps ourselves. And so as you come into Isaiah chapter 50, in this third servant song, it really starts out with an application to the people of God, or it lands on an application with the people of God. So the first, first nine verses, he's talking about who he is and what his experiences are. But then in verse 10, he turns to the people of God. And Jesus in the Old Testament speaks to them. And you know what he asked them? He says this. He says, will you follow me? Look, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the Lord of his servant? He looks to the people of God and he says, will you follow me? Well, I'm going to fear the Lord. Will you fear the Lord? I'm going to trust the Lord. Will you trust the Lord? I'm going to obey the Lord. Will you obey the Lord? And so he's showing us where we should go and 
how, who we should be. But then, look at what else he says. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. He doesn't just say, will you follow after me? He says, this is how you can do it. Will you rely on the Lord? Will you offer up your life to him and will you walk moment by moment, step by step, day by day in reliance, in confidence, in faith, in trust in the Lord? That this is who you should be and this by relying on the Lord, trusting on the Lord, being helped by the Lord, this is how you can actually be that person. This is how you can actually begin to fulfill the call of obedience that the Lord has placed upon your life. And so I think what we see here in the third servant song is we see the who and the how we can be servants of the living God. The who and how we can be servants of the living God. By seeing what kind of servant he is, we can see now what kind of servant we're called to be and what kind of servant by the victory of the cross we are enabled to be. First, I want you to see that we are servants who live by the word because that's who he was. He was a servant who lived by the word. You know that perhaps there's no greatest indicator of the values that we actually hold than the aspirations that we have for our children. And the aspirations that we have for our children are usually pretty lofty, right? Mom, you know, like little Junior comes home and he's made an A on his fourth grade math test. And immediately, it's hard not to let yourself be transferred. I bet he's going to be an engineer. You know, if he's an engineer, he might work for NASA. If he works for NASA, he might go to the moon. Can you just imagine, like, what if our family as an astronaut passed the fourth grade test, right? And not only that, we begin to redeem those negative qualities and we put a positive spin on them because it may help us get to the aspirations, right? Like, for instance, you know, he argues with me. What an obstinate child. But you know, lawyers argue a lot. I bet he's going to be a lawyer. Obviously, God has well-equipped my child, my son, my daughter. They're going to be a prosecutor. You know what? A lot of presidents are lawyers. I bet he's going to be a president. I what if our family has a president of the United States? And I'm going to tell that story at the, at the inauguration about how I used to argue with his mom all the time, right? You begin to think about all the aspirations that we have with, for our children. They usually center upon two things, don't they? Prominence and buying power, right? Prominence and affluence. Isn't it interesting that as we hear here before the birth of Jesus, recognizing that these words are fulfilled in the person of Jesus... That the aspirations that God has for his son are quite different than the aspirations that we have for our children. That the aspirations that God has for his son is not that he be president. The aspirations that God has for his son is not that he be an astronaut. It's not that he'd be affluent. It's not that he would be well educated or well endowed or well thought of. The aspirations that he has for his son is that his son would be a servant. A servant. How many of us aspire for our children to have a life of servanthood? How many of us, as we think of the values of our families, think that what we really want is we really want our children, that they would sit and be hung on the words of God, that they would hang on every living word that comes out of his mouth, that they would obey him and keep his word and answer his call when he comes. That's what servants do, isn't it? They hang on the words of their master. They hang on the words of their master, that everything that their master would tell them to do, that's what they go and do. And they, they wait with anticipation with what their master would have them for, to do. And that's what we see with this servant. We see that he is skilled with the word. 
that he is skilled with the word. Look at verse 4. It says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. The tongue of those who are taught. In, in Jesus' day, you would take the children that made the highest on their math test. You would take the children that, that were the greatest debaters. And you wouldn't set them aside to be astronauts. And you wouldn't set them aside to be, to be presidents. You would set them aside to be students of the law of God. You would set them aside to be able to study the scrolls and to devote their life to knowing and to understanding the word of God. And you would have them commit themselves because what they recognized is that there was at the very center of their society was the word that was governing them and holding them together and speaking to them with the authority of God and offering to them the way of God that they could flourish and thrive as a people. Well, what you begin to recognize in the Gospels is that Jesus is one who stands out even among those. I think of that famous story in Luke chapter 2. Jesus is just a boy. He's 12 years old. And at 12 years old, you'll remember his mom and dad, they've come into Jerusalem for the Passover, and they've walked a day's journey, and all of a sudden they realize that little Jesus isn't around. Mary and Joseph, as parents do, begin to worry and fret and try to figure out where their child is. And they begin to retrace their steps. And they retrace their steps all the way back to the temple. And they open up the, they enter into the temple gates. And what they see there is Jesus is there at at 12 years old. And the rabbis are gathered. And Jesus is hanging on every word that he says. But most, most, uh, most marked of all is that Jesus is there and he's asking questions. Do you remember what it says? That here are these learned men. These men that have devoted their life to understanding the word of God. These men that have, under, have devoted their life to thinking of all of the controversial questions. And all of the mysterious questions. And investigating and knowing what the word of God has said. And what the rabbinical tradition has said. And yet Jesus asked them questions and it says that they're amazed. They're amazed and they're astonished that even at 12 years old, the Lord had granted to him an ability of those who were taught that he knew the word of God in a way that was unlike any of the other teachers, that he was able to speak it in a way and understand it in a way that left even the most learned men of his day totally and utterly astonished, which is quite a feat for a carpenter's boy. But what's most impressive, or maybe what's most unique, is who he spoke it to and the effect that it had. Who he spoke it to and the effect that it had. You see, all the, there were a lot of learned men. There were a lot of skilled teachers. There were a lot of those who were able to teach and be able to teach well and to be able to tell you the history and to give you the context and to tell you the historical placement and to be able to make some kind of interpretation of the text. But what made Jesus different was who he spoke to and, how, and, and the effect that it had. Look at what it says. That I may know how to sustain him with a word who is weary. Who is weary. You see, if you would have went to the great rabbis of Jesus' day, they would have come and they would have downloaded all kind of theological theories on you. They would have come and they would have told you not just the law, but all of the ramifications of the law and all of the new laws that had been invented around those laws to make sure that those laws were protected by extra laws. And so what they would do with their teaching is you would come to them tired. You would come to them starving. You would come to them weary. You would come to them with dryness of the soul. And they would take the law of God and the word of God and they would stack it on you like bricks. That the hungry and the starving and the weary, they came to the teachers and coming to the teachers, the teachers only added to the burden. The teachers of the law only further burdened them by the law. 
So why is it that sinners and tax collectors would gather around the feet of Jesus? Why is it that, that women would go and take their most precious ointment and perfume and bust it over Jesus' feet? Why is it that great crowds would bring their sick and their weary? Why is it that the blind would come? Why is it that the lepers would come? Because when Jesus came, he didn't add to the bricks, he removed the burden. He taught the word of God in a way that it was not being taught. They sucked the life out of you. Jesus breathed the life into you. They burdened your spirit. Jesus renewed your spirit. They parched your soul. Jesus gave to you living water. He came and he taught as one who could come and bring hope and joy and peace and contentment to the weary, parched souls of his day. So why was he so different? Why was he so different from all those other rabbis? Why was he so different from all of those other teachers? I think we have a good clue to this. It says, morning by morning, he, that's his God, awakens me. Uh, morning by morning, he awakens me. He, he wakens my ear to those who are taught. Do you hear what he's saying? The, the difference between Jesus and those other teachers, the difference between one who is trained to teach and one who can teach is that Jesus, morning by morning, was being sustained by the word himself. That morning by morning, he was enjoying fellowship and communion with God himself. Morning by morning, he would gather with the word of God to pray in the face of God. And there, the Lord himself would energize his spirit and fill him with a fresh word and fill him with fresh joy and fresh amazement at the glory of who he is and reset his day. So that when he came and he talked to those who were weary, he had just been reset himself. He had just been renewed himself. And he could offer to them the fresh bread that he had just enjoyed. That the difference between Jesus and those other teachers is, was his relationship to the word. That he was skilled in the word, but he was sustained by the word too. He was one that went and fellowshiped with God through the word. He didn't go to the word looking for genealogies. He didn't go to the word looking for the Da Vinci Code. He didn't go to the word looking to be able to crack some kind of mystery to life. He went to the word to abide with God. And if you want your spirit renewed, you want your soul encouraged, you want your burdens lifted, go and spend time with people that have spent time with God. You know, that's what we need. That's what we need. What we need are learned people in the word of God. What we need are skillful teachers of the word of God. That's what we need in our homes. That's what we need in our schools. That's what we need in our culture, in our workplaces. That's what we need in our churches. We need people who are skilled with the word of God. But skilled not with how-to sermons. How-to sermons are bricks on your back that tell you how far short you fall. They give you another strategy that you can't keep, another rule that you can't observe to tell you what a loser and failure you ultimately are. But the gospel, the gospel comes and he finds that dried up soul. The gospel comes and it finds you where you are. And it doesn't take an ad bricks. It says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me and my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Come to me and stack those bricks on my shoulder and let me melt up to Calvary. You see what we need? What we need are husbands who are in the home 
And when all the world comes and tells your wife why she's not a good mom and why she doesn't measure up and why she can't manage all the things at her job and all the things in her home and all the things with her kid, what we need in the home are husbands who are fellowshipping morning by morning, awakened by the word of God that can go and sustain her and say, no, 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 Jesus has said you are enough. Jesus has filled the cup. What we need is mamas and daddies. As we send our babies off into the world and to face down gender identity issues and to face off homosexuality and to face off all of the confusion and the chaos of our day. What as they come home and they are beaten and they are beaten ragged and they are bullied and they are downtrodden and they are trying to figure out how they can put on better clothes to measure up and how they can put on a better face to measure up and how they can put on better shoes and measure up. What we need are mamas and daddies skilled in the word, sustained by the word that can offer them the hope that they can be content in Jesus and that they don't have to put on shoes and they don't have to put on shirts and they don't have to put on faces and they don't have to put on airs and they don't have to impress a single person because Christ has come for them. Do you feel how that breathes life into our children? Oh, that's what our homes need. That's what we need in our church. We need teachers who will labor with God, walk with God, fellowship with God in his word, day in and day out, abide with the Lord in the word to come into the church, not with a dry lesson, not with a new mystery, not with a great system of theology, but with fellowship with God who can come in and breathe life into us who have weary souls. You see, there's one thing way to teach and stack bricks. There's another way to teach and remove burdens. Jesus, those who walk in the way of Jesus, those who teach in the way of Jesus, breathe life into the weary. Servants live by the word. They hang on the word of their master. And servants answer when they're called. Servants answer when they're called. Not that long ago, uh, I, watched a, I, I came across a video. I just felt seen. You know what I mean? You ever just felt seen? You're just a video you can relate to? Matt, would you go ahead and cue this? I, I think a lot of you are going to relate to this. It's hot on the bottom. It's hot on the bottom! Amen? Amen? You have in your mind today, I'm going to be gentle with the children. Today, I'm going to be patient with the children. Today, I'm going to be gracious to the children. It's hot. It's hot. I said it's hot! Right? It's really difficult. It's really difficult to not lose your composure with obstinate children that don't listen. Isn't it? Y'all, stop laughing. Guess who we are? That's the context here. The context of Isaiah chapter 50 is that the people have not listened. If you'll go back and look at chapter 50 verse 2, he says, When I call, who's coming? This is the Lord talking. When I call, who is coming? You will not listen to me. You will not hear me. You are an obstinate child. You reject my word. You go your own way. And the result is, is that all of us are walking around with burned hands and ruined lives, aren't we? Because the Lord speaks to us, but we reject him. The Lord speaks to us, but we ignore him. And so we might expect, that like we do with our children, that God would lose his composure with us. That God would eventually fly off the hand and say, it's hot on the bottom. Right? But you know what he does? He puts the word in flesh. And he sends his servant to live among us. 
Isn't that different? He puts his word in flesh to live among us, to show us who we are to be, to make it possible to walk behind him, to carve out a path in the snow that's too high for us to walk through. And by sending the servant, what he does is he creates a contrast with the obedience of the actual servant, with the obedience of all of us who are servants. You'll notice that, first of all, that Jesus obeys immediately. Jesus obeys immediately. He hears the word of God and it says, The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I went in the way the Lord would have for me to go. You know, all of you have probably had someone who you're close to come and seek your advice. Maybe they're marriage is struggling or maybe their husband or their wife is constantly telling them that there's some particular flaw in their character and maybe they're even coming to you not so much for advice but they're coming to you just to be able to vent for a second and to have you tell them how great they really are you know what i found out is in a large percentage of cases when people come to us and they need our counsel or need our advice then in a large percentage of cases the conversation can go something like this oh i hear that what do you think you ought to do And they'll usually tell you, and very often what you can say is, that actually sounds really, really wise. You should go and do that. But they don't do it. They don't do it. They know what they ought to do. They know who they ought to be. They know how they ought to act. They know how they ought to treat other people. They know how they ought to manage their business. They know how they ought to obey God. They just don't. And our issue, y'all, is not a deficit of knowledge. Our issue is a deficit of obedience, that we have an obedience deficit. But here is the servant of of God. Here is Christ himself, and he is a learned man, and he knows. He is taught in the way of the teachers, and he knows all the things that he should do, and he understands the word of God and the law of God. He understands who he should be and how he should live. And the difference between him and us is that he actually applies what he knows. He actually obeys when the Lord calls, that when his master issues a decree, when his master gives an order, this servant is quick and ready to respond. And what we should also notice here is that the obedience that he has is not an easy obedience, is it? It, Sometimes it's easy to obey in the easy ones, isn't it? it? It's easy to obey when it's something that you already find reasonable. It's easy to obey when it's something that you already find convenient. It's easy to obey when there's very little cost involved. It's the hard obediences that bring into our lives a, a temptation to go the other way. It's a, it's a hard obedience that's called into our lives that, that's very difficult for us to, to not turn and, and go the opposite direction, to, to not be rebellious. We can be obedient in the easy ones. So what's in mind here? It's the cross, isn't it? It's the cross that's in mind. That here, as he's talking about, I refuse to rebel. Here, when he's talking about, I refuse to go another way. Here, when he's talking about, I refuse to turn to the right or to the left or to turn around and go backwards. He's talking about the cross. It's on the cross where his back is struck. It's on the cross when the beard is ripped out of his cheek. It's, It's on the cross when he is faced with disgrace and when the spit of men is mingled with the blood of our Savior. It's on the cross. But even there, on the cross, in the midst of a hard obedience, even there in which he ought to... To be 
quick to turn and reconsider and to contemplate other options. There is no contemplation. There is no reset. There is no desire. Instead, he will endure willingly what has been set before him because he has obeyed immediately. See, it's important to notice the word gave here. I gave my back. I hid not my face. What does that tell us? This is, he is a volunteer, isn't he? He's a volunteer. That Jesus is not compelled to the cross by a Roman sword. And Jesus is not compelled to the cross by an angry mob. If you want to understand fundamental Christian theology, if you want to understand the very groundwork of the gospel, you have to understand that. He is, not com- he is not commandeered by an army with no hope to, to escape. No, no, he is compelled not by a sword, not by a mob, but by passion and love for his Father's glory. He is compelled because he is so devoted to his Father that he is more devoted to his Father's glory than he is to the skin on his back. He is more devoted to the glory of his Father than he is to the beard in his face. He is more devoted to the obedience of his father's will than he is to his own standard of living. How many of us would choose obedience when it comes in conflict with our standard of living? How many of us will choose obedience when it comes into conflict with our other allegiances? How many of us would choose obedience when it comes into conflict with our health? How many of us would choose obedience when it comes into conflict with with the dreams and the aspirations that we've had for retirement? There's likely not a deficit of knowledge. But brothers and sisters, where in your life is there a deficit of obedience? Where in your life is there a deficit of obedience? Because what this servant shows to us is wherever we can find a deficit of obedience, what we are ultimately discovering is a deficit of love for our Heavenly Father. That here, who is one who volunteers? Who is one who gives his life? It is not the one who just obeys the words of his master. It is the one who loves the words of his master. Do you love them or resent them? Do you enjoy them or reject them? This is the kind of servant that Jesus is. This is the kind of servant that we are to be. Servants answer when they're called. And servants depend upon their Lord. Servants depend upon their Lord. A few years ago, there was a a woman that was visiting our church, a a couple that was visiting our church, and she set an appointment to come by and and to talk with me. And I discovered quickly in, in this appointment that she had really come under the influence of, of Bethel and their aberrant theology. And she had actually was a graduate of their school of ministry. And as she graduated from the school of ministry, she had graduated as a universalist, which means that she believes that in the end there's no person in hell, that all of us are, are grandfathered into heaven in some way. And so she and I are, are, are dialoguing and we're going back and forth and, and, and it was a, a good faith discussion. I, I felt like she came and wanted to hear what I had to say. And so I, I ultimately asked her this. I said, I said you know, it, it seems to me that if all of us are ultimately going to just end, in, end up in heaven and be grandfathered into heaven, it, it seems as though the, the cross was, was rather unnecessary. 
Because what she said, what her belief was, is that all of us are born with a divine essence and none of us are born as sinners. And what our responsibility is in this life is to have this divine essence more uncovered and more activated in us. And that Christians, we may realize that faster than other world beliefs, but regardless of who you worship, regardless of what you do, and regardless of who you bow down to, ultimately, as you come into eternity, this divine essence is going to be activated and that no sin is going to get in the way. And I'll be honest with you, I really was not prepared for her answer. I said, it seems to me that the cross is rather unnecessary. And she said, it is. Boldly. She said, it is. I said, well, what was the purpose of Jesus' death on the cross? This is what she said. She said, the purpose of Jesus going to the cross was to set for us an example of what it means to live for God. Of what it means to humble yourselves. Now, as we've already seen, that's half true, isn't it? But it's possible to be half true and entirely wrong at the exact same time. It's possible to be half true and entirely wrong at the, entire, at the same time. Because what I told her is the same thing that I would tell to you. Is what a burden that is. That Jesus' cross is not for, for my forgiveness. Jesus' cross is not for the discovery of grace. Jesus' cross is a burden, a standard, a measuring stick that I have to live up to that I will never attain. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not a measuring stick for us. He is a gate through whom we enter. He is a gate through whom we enter. He is not a measuring stick saying, you must accomplish. He is a crucified Savior saying, I have accomplished on your behalf. See, it's not enough for us to say this is who we're supposed to be. What we have to recognize is that the primary work of the cross, the primary glory of the new covenant is now this is who we have been enabled to be. And this was the picture from the beginning. That from Christ, what we see is that he, because of the Lord, is able to live without fear. You'll notice in verse 7 that what the, Savior, what the servant says is really remarkable. And this is life-giving for all of us who are weary. This is, this is a drink of water for all of us whose souls are parched. He comes in verse 7, he says, the Lord helps me. Comes again in verse 9 and he says, the Lord God helps me. That he says, how am I going to be obedient? How is it that this life that I'm living is going to make any sense? How is all of this going to be? The Lord is going to help me. The Lord is going to fill me with his spirit. The spirit is going to descend on him like a dove. The sky is going to split. The father in heaven is going to say, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And through the power of the spirit, he's going to walk this life. And for the power of the spirit, he's going to be raised from the dead. Right? Brothers and sisters, is that not the power that we have? Now what's remarkable about this is Jesus is able to live what is obviously a terrifying life. And he's able to live fearlessly. How many of you could describe yourselves that way? How many of you feel that way? You probably feel much more characterized by your fears than your fearlessness, don't you? But look at what it says about Jesus. It's interesting too what it says. It says that the great fear doesn't seem to be dead. It says, therefore I have not been disgraced. And... Uh, or put to shame that the fear even greater than death for the savior the temptation is to be shamed and you have to understand that the cross the cross was as much about shame as it was about killing you it was as much about humiliating you and and embarrassing you and bringing reproach upon the name of your family and reproach upon the name of of uh, your ancestors as it was about executing you 
So here he is, and he's saying, I'm not going to be put to shame, though. I'm not, I'm not going to be disgraced. How? Because the Lord is going to help me. You know what the greatest, the greatest threat against you? Probably many of you, if someone put a gun to your head and said, do you believe in Jesus? Many of you would say yes. You may not even flinch. You may, you, you may have already made the decision. I hope that you have already made the decision that if it ever came to that, that you would gladly lay down your life for your Savior. But why is it that we don't live for him? Why is it that we're quiet in public? Why is it that we're tentative with our children? It's because we're afraid of shame more than death. We're afraid of being humiliated for following Jesus more than we are dying for Jesus. That's why we don't obey him. So here is the Savior, and what does he say? Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. That way, that, 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 therefore, I have, I have put my face out there in an iron jaw, and I have said, bring it on to all the principalities. I have looked at the demons, and I have said, bring on your best fight. I have looked to the devil right in the eye, and I have said, come at me, devil. How is he able to say it? The Lord helps me. The Lord helps me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? We can say the same words as Jesus. Romans chapter 8. Who is it that can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Brothers and sisters, we live in a fearful time. I'm not going to deny that. We live in a time that wants to bring shame and reproach upon your life. We live and we, we're supposed to follow this ethical standard that is thousands of years old. We, we are called bigots. There's no social benefit. Our, our children are laughed at. We are laughed at. We're, we're living devoted to a God that our neighbors cannot see. We send our children and deploy them into a world that is in all kinds of confusion. And we are terrified. I'm terrified. What if my children get lost? What if my children get wrapped up in the cyclones of this age? What, what am I going to do? But like our Savior, we can set our face like a flint. We can say, bring it on. Because we are not people who walk in fear. We are not people who live in fear. Why? The Lord helps us. You're not strong, but he is. You can't, but he can. You're not able, but he is able. And he is with you. He's with you in your, with your mom and dad, as a mom and dad. He is with you in your marriage. He is with you as you train up your... He is with you as you go into the workplace. He is with you. For I have not received the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Brothers and sisters, do not be afraid of the world. Do not antagonize the world. Do not be a jerk in the world. But certainly, my goodness, don't be afraid of the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He lives without fear and he lives without loss. This is how he's able to live. How is he able to look and to not worry about the judgments of all the men? How is it that here the Son of God who deserves all the glory of heaven can hear the crowds of his own people chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, and not bat an eye in his obedience to his Father? It's because he recognizes something. That the judgments of men are just like everything else. They're going to waste away like moths, like moth-eaten rust. 
Behold, the Lord helps me. Him who will declare me guilty. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. He recognizes that the men and the judgments they make will all just be worm food in the end. But his Father's glory will endure forever. You see, when he went to the cross, it looked like a wasted life, didn't it? It looked like a wasted life. When the beard was ripped out of his face, it looked like a wasted life. When the stripes were across his back, it looked like a wasted life. And every single one of you, the life that he's calling you to, your neighbors are going to look on and it's going to look like a wasted life. Cross-centered lives look wasted in a moth-eaten world. Oh, it looked wasted until the resurrection. Until the resurrection. And brothers and sisters, your life is going to look wasted until the resurrection. See, it's a Christian paradox. That if I'm going to live like I'm, if I'm going to die now so that I can live later, it's going to seem as though my life is impossible. It's going to look impossible to go and to walk in the ways of God in a world that is walking against, against God. It's going to look impossible to, to walk down the, the narrow path when everybody else is calling me and inviting me to the wide path. It's going to look impossible when I'm calling my children to believe in a God that they cannot see. It's going to look impossible. And it's going to look frivolous and like I'm chasing after the wind half of the time. Oh, but you see, life without God is actually impossible. Life without God is actually impossible. Your buying power may be greater. Your zip code may be nicer. Your car may be faster. Your shirt may be more expensive. Your, car, your kids may have a greater education. You may have a higher ceiling in this world. But the ceiling in this world is slowly being eaten away by moths. And one day when all of this turns to dust... What you'll, be rec- what you'll recognize is that all you're left with is worm food and a gaping hole in your soul. Unless you go the way of the servant. Unless you take up your cross in this life and follow after him in pursuit of the resurrection that is to come. Because what you recognize is, brothers and sisters, when the resurrection comes, the cross turns out not to be that expensive. All of your losses, all of your pains, all of your agonies, all of your sleeplessness, all of your losses turn to glory and gain and crowns in the next life. And it is a crown of unfading glory. So let's be servants, brothers and sisters. Let's be servants. Let's be servants in the way of Jesus who has shown us the way. Let's be servants, brothers and sisters, in the power of Jesus who has made the way. Let's pray the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.